0: Welcome to The Long Box of Darkness, a podcast focusing on horror in comic book form. I'm your host, Herman Lowe. Join me as we take a peek into The Long Box of Darkness. It's good to be back. It's been a week since the last show, but it feels a lot longer than that. I've been busy, probably like most of you. Um, Not a lot of time to read, really, but I, you know, made some time as we all do with our passions. We find some time here and there, neglect our sleep, family members, that kind of thing. Our pets, especially my pets, suffer. They suffer a lot. And funny thing is, in this book that we're discussing this week, um, it's got a fair amount of animal suffering, so bear with me as we focus on a comic book near and dear to my heart. It's called The Eyes of the Cat by Alejandro Jodorowsky and Jean Giraud, also known as Mabius. Thank you. The Eyes of the Cat was first published in 1978 by the French science fiction magazine Metal Hurlant, which we know as a heavy metal magazine. And they distributed 5,000 copies of this book for free to some relations of the publisher and friends of Metal Hurlant, writers and artists and so forth. And then Jodorowsky and Moebius already very well-known and um, they had a highly successful collaboration on the Inkle, they didn't mind. They were um, doing this as a reward for their loyal fans who had supported them during their initial publications. It was only afterwards that pirated copies started appearing on the black market, which in modern terms that would probably be eBay, but back then it was the, the black market for books. and. After they went for quite high prices, the publisher decided to redistribute and republish the comic book. So Jodorowsky and Moebius. It's a funny story how they first met. Um, Jodorowsky was slated um, to produce and direct a version of Frank Herbert's science fiction masterpiece Dune. And he had the task of bringing it to the big screen. So he had to assemble artists and writers and lots of um, people to work on this project. And um, some of them he needed for storyboards and for conceptual designs. And so he walked into a coffee shop or a gas station, I'm not quite sure, with the producer of Dune at that time, Michel Sedoux, And they saw some comic books, science fiction comic books and uh, Western comic books or or movies about the old, uh, comic books about the Old West. And then they saw that there was this artist they liked called Jean Giraud. And there was also another artist they fancied uh, drawing science fiction comics called Mebius. So Jodorowsky wanted to meet these two people. He wanted them to work on Dune. And he got in touch with this agent in Paris, arranged a meeting and as it turned out Jean Giraud and Mebius was one and the same, much to the surprise and delight of Jodorowsky. And the Dune project unfortunately did not come to fruition. Lots of people were assembled to work on it, Um, guys like Chris Foss, the British sci-fi illustrator, Dan O'Bannon, the screenwriter, and um, also H.R. Giger, who is now famous for his designs of the creature from the movie Alien by Ridley, Ridley Scott. And in fact, if it wasn't for Yodorowsky assembling these folk like a kind of think tank uh, that they were at the time, uh, Alien would probably have had a totally different creative force behind it. So Jodorowsky was very upset when Things fell through through with the Dune project, uh, rightfully so, because they had worked on it for more than two years, and Moebius and O'Bannon and everybody, Giger, they were all disappointed. But Moebius and Jodorowsky decided to turn all their conceptual designs and ideas into a series of graphic novels, which resulted in the Inkle. So that's how they started to make comics together. And before that, of course, Möbius had already been... Uh, force in European comic book creation and now he had the writing talents and sheer imagination of Jodorowsky behind him. So it resulted in some pretty fantastic stuff and The Eyes of the Cat is their first horror story which makes it quite special since Jodorowsky for me is very effective as a horror writer. So let's get into the comic book itself. Originally conceived as a five-page story, Mobius suggested that they do a 25-page story using single-panel pages. And the comic book was printed on yellow paper because it was going to be um, largely colorless, black and white, and the yellow background sort of accentuated that. And because of the single-panel pages... Uh, The story reads very, very quickly. There's also not a large amount of text, which makes it no less of a terrifying horror story. It shows you what two masters can accomplish with just 25 panels in a 25-page comic book. So, basically, the eyes of the cat is set in this apocalyptic world. It's never really mentioned what happened. Was it a nuclear war? Was it a disease that wiped out most of humanity? All we know is that what's left over is strange and broken, and ruined, warped, if you will. And the story follows a young boy standing in front of a window in a tall building, looking kind of like a temple of sorts, but it's obviously one of the tallest buildings in this broken city. And he always appears on the left-hand panel. While on the right-hand panel, scenes of the city is shown, alleys, streets, and then a ray of sunlight penetrates the cloud cover. And by all intimation, we come to realize that the sun is a very rare thing. A A ray of sunlight that penetrates this thick smog that covers the city um, is very precious, and whatever life is left in the city seeks out this sunlight to bask in it. And this boy that's been waiting outside his window, seemingly facing the city, has been waiting for this ray of sunlight because out of the, an alley steps an animal, and it turns out to be a black cat. And the black cat is uh, similarly surprised by this ray of sunlight and seeks it out, uh, going so far as to expose itself to danger by standing in the middle of this ray of sunlight, enjoying the warmth. And the little boy seems to mentally, or at least as a type of narrative in his brain, he talks to a pet of his, which turns out to be a giant eagle. And the eagle soaring over the city. And this animal is the sort of the weapon that the boy employs against whatever creatures he deems his prey. So as this cat is sitting, totally unaware in this ray of sunlight, the eagle swoops down. And as the eagle eagle swoops closer and closer, the story keeps moving towards the boy standing in the window, and then back to the eagle flying, boy standing in the window. And then eventually, The eagle attacks and uh, sinks its claws into the back of the cat, and there's this wonderful panel of the cat looking up, staring backwards into the uh, face of the eagle, gazing down into the eyes of the cat. And the boy up in the temple, uh, staring through the temple window, congratulates his pet for making the kill, and then the horror commences the eagle proceeds to tear out the eyes of the cat. And when both eyes have been removed, the tendrils, the the optic nerves are streaming from these two orbs. The eagle flies up over the city with these tendrils trailing from the eyeballs clasped in his claws and he flies towards the temple. And the boy holds out his hands kind of like he's leading a prayer and the eagle flies towards him and drops the eyeballs into his two outstretched hands. And it is at this point in time that we realize one of the panels we've just seen is the face of the boy and the boy's eye sockets are completely empty, but it's more than empty. He, it's not just that he's blind and he doesn't have eyes. It's that as if his face had been carved from stone, like a statue, and then the eyes had been removed by a chisel or a hammer. So his two eye sockets almost looked broken, but not in the way flesh would, more in the way stone or rock would look once it's been cracked open. And the boy smiles as he accepts these two gifts from his pet, who turns out to be called Meduse. At least that's what the boy named him. In the narrative and he proceeds to place the eyeballs inside his empty eye sockets and he's smiling he's happy as a child would be he's, he's a very young child and as this happens he prances around the empty room filled with detritus and rubble with the eagle accompanying him and he dances around and he says what a wonderful game of sight that he's experiencing. But the eyes eventually fall from his empty sockets. Obviously they never worked. And then he sends his eagle forth again to hunt for more eyes, but this time with a command to bring him the eyes of a child next. So the horror in this story comes from the fact that a child's game has been turned into something murderous and terrifying. Animals are the first to go, but obviously later on there must be some semblance or uh, of humanity left in the city. And that is what the eagle will be hunting next in order to bring the boy, the eyes of a child to play with. So it's a terrifying story. I would recommend it. Um, It's really, really uh, atmospheric and this was, I think, the first time that Moebius employed zippetone, which really adds to the detail. Um, a great use of shadows, um, some cross hatching that makes it look very sinister, eerie, uh, or almost like cross hatching, more like a, a, a zip-a-tone type of shading that he employed, makes for a great uh, visual read, and almost no dialogue. But the dialogue that is given is suitably disturbing I'll read a bit here. It starts off with uh, when the comic starts the uh, English publisher um, who recently I think humanoids, although they're a French publisher they recently published a I think in 2012 they published a hardcover of on the Eyes of the Cat and uh, they kept the French name on the first page page which is les yeux du chat by Jodorowsky and Möbius. And then we see the first um, narratives uh, given by the boy. I can feel the heat, he says. And that's him referring to the sunlight. And he mentions that saying, finally, a morsel of sunlight. And this word morsel foreshadows um, what the bird would eventually do to the cat plucking these two juicy morsels from the eyes of, from the face of the cat. And then we see the boy um, speaking directly to his eagle. He says, at the ready, Meduse, he nears. And then the boy himself seems to be able to hear very acutely, possibly because of his blindness, because he can actually hear the paw steps of the cat, from on high. So he says, I hear his paw steps. He now appears and the cat walks out. And once the cat is within the ray of sunlight, the boy says, now Meduse, now dive. And we see this eagle just diving as if the boy is sort of mentally controlling this bird. And the eagle dives, proceeds to dive through a couple of panels and eventually kills the cat. And the boy just congrat- congratulates him with a "Bravo, Meduse. And we have this wonderful page of the eagle standing triumphant over his kill, the cat whose eyes are now closed forever with his tongue lolling out of his mouth. Disturbing. And then the boy kind of sends a mental command at the eagle saying, forget not to save me the eyes. And the eagle pulls the eyes from the cat's sockets and flies up and hands them over to the boy. And then there's not a lot of uh, narrative, just a lot of visual storytelling. Once it gets to the boy's image himself, where you see this broken child dressed in ragged clothes, almost in a priestly type of robe, almost as if he's a servant of some god or himself a god, and he places the eyes in his sockets. And then the next um, sentence he utters is, a joy so marvelous... Could just be a thought. Who knows if he could actually speak? And then he's, he finishes with saying, this game that is sight. But next meduse the eyes of a child. And then the comic ends. So suitably disturbing. Um, one of Jodorowsky's and maybe uses masterpieces. All right, so we're going to take a little break. When we come back, I'll talk about my personal history with this comic book and how I first came to read it many years ago. Hey man. Read this. I told you, I don't like horror comics. Think of it more as a survival manual. There's a number on the back. And pray you never need to call us. I'll pray I never need to call you. When I was about... 20, 21 years old or so, um, at university. The campus where we stayed and studied was quite near the um, center of the city of Johannesburg. But we also had a great little student um, community located in a neighborhood off campus. And this community was full of little bookstores and comic book shops, so I would frequent these places, you know, during my study sessions, and um, I walked into this comic book store called Outer Limits that I've been frequenting for a couple of years, and I was looking at the paperbacks. I remember I wasn't particularly buying comics at that time, and I saw some paperbacks of Frank Herbert's Dune, and I had already read the series, but These ones had covers that I've never seen before, so I decided to buy some of them. And as I was picking out these Dune books, uh, probably secondhand too, this Swedish guy came up to me with this thick Scandinavian accent, and he said, "Uh, so I'm a fan of Dune. And I said, yeah, I I love the series. It's a great sci-fi series. And and he said, did you know that... um, There was going to be a Dune movie. And I said, what do you mean? There has been a Dune movie. It's been done. David Lynch did the movie. So what do you mean? He said, no, 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 no. He was referring to a Dune movie made by uh, European creators, possibly around 1973, 1974 or so. And um, the European creators that he was talking about happened to be his favorite comic book writers. And that's why he's in the comic book shop. He was wondering if he uh, could buy any of their um, published works. And he was disappointed that there were none in that comic book shop. So I was asking him, uh, I struck up a conversation obviously with him after this because I was curious and I asked him, "What, what comic book writers are you talking about? And he mentioned Jodorowsky by name and I'd never heard about Jodorowsky up until this point and he also said that um, M- Mabeus, his favorite artist, um, was doing some of the conceptual work on Dune and I was very surprised. i had never known about any of this. So I asked him which comic books would you recommend from these two because back then everything new that I heard of that I wanted to read but um, couldn't buy at the exact moment that I heard about it. I wrote down in a notebook, and I still have that very self-same notebook, uh, or I've got dozens of them by now, but um, I wrote down the name of the comic books he mentioned. He mentioned The Inkle, and he mentioned The Eyes of the Cat. So, of course, I was very curious being a horror fan because I asked him what the stories were about, and he told me especially The Eyes of the Cat. The storyline sounded pretty horrific. Uh, So I've always wanted to read that. And then I made it a point to track down any publication that had The Eyes of the Cat. And unfortunately, I couldn't do it. However, another comic book store owner in Cape Town, whom I met a few months after that, he had a copy of Steve Bissett's Taboo number 4. I don't know where he got it. To the best of my knowledge, Taboo wasn't distributed or published in South Africa at that time, but it was in Cape Town that I borrowed that copy of Taboo. And in that issue, Taboo being a horror anthology of sorts with also some sci-fi and fantasy tales in it, I found the story, The Eyes of the Cat, and I read it, and I reread it, and I read it again because the story was just so poignant, so striking. I-, I tried to make sense of it. At first, I didn't know what I was reading, but I could definitely feel the, the horror permeating this page, the pages. So I had to have more. And after I was probably forced to give back that copy of Taboo Number 4, I couldn't find the eyes of the cat again. Until 2012, when Humanoids Publishing released a hardcover, and I saw it on Amazon, I bought it immediately, of the eyes of the cat, and I was very happy to find it again. It occupies a very, very uh, special place on my bookshelf, a place of honor, but now it's in the long box of darkness along with the rest of the things I still want to discuss. So that's my personal history with the eyes of the cat. Well, we're back, and um, I'd like to welcome a guest to the show. You might remember her from previous shows. She's kind of the de facto producer of The Long Box of Darkness, a fan of manga and Japanese horror RPGs, but a reluctant reader of Western comic books. But I'm trying to work on that and get her more into the kind of things I'm reading. Um, so today, she's also a victim of alliteration. Please welcome the enigmatic, the eerie, the thoroughly evil Mrs. Erin Lynn to the show. Hi Erin, how's it going?
1: So I'm evil now. That's a nasty thing to say.
0: Hey, uh, if the shoe fits, Erin.
1: So what about I call you horrible Herman or her piece man? What?
0: Um, okay, Erin, that's, that's a little bit harsh, touche. Um, Uh, I I might prefer a better moniker than that. What about just Horror Herman or Herman the Horror Meister or something like that? So um, today, Erin, we're going to play a little game, aren't we?
1: Yeah, maybe.
0: All right. So just to um, inform the listeners, this is a game called Word Association, but we've changed it to Quick Description. So how it works is I've picked a list of 10 words, horror-related, and Erin's picked a list of 10 words. And then I read the words on my list, um, the names of horror characters, and she has to give a quick description of each. And then we time each other and see who can get through the list the quickest. So, Erin, are you ready to play? Can I say no? <laughs> Sorry, you agreed, and I've bribed you. <laughs> Money has ex- has changed hands, so it's too late for that. All right, um, I'll go first, if that's okay with you. Yeah. All right, uh, let me get the timer set uh, here on my phone. Got it. Okay, here we go. Okay, first name on my list. Dracula.
1: The King of Vampires.
0: Good. Um, Hellboy.
1: red strong man.
0: <laughs> well, he's technically a demon, but whatever. Uh, Ghost Rider.
1: Burnish skull riding his motorcycle.
0: Yeah, okay. Uh, Spawn?
1: I don't know who that is.
0: Spawn, you don't know Spawn. Wow. Um, Okay, John Constantine.
1: Keanu Reeves.
0: Keanu Reeves? That's what you remember from John Constantine? I can't believe you said that. It's a horrible movie. Uh, Lucifer?
1: Angel from the Hell.
0: Okay, good. Uh, The Joker.
1: Batman's opponent.
0: Yeah. Uh, Pennywise? The clown,
1: the crazy clown who likes to kill children.
0: Yeah, that's right. Um, Abe Sapien, the monkey, a monkey. Abe Sapien. Oh, not ape Sapien. Not ape Sapien. <laughs> there is no ape Sapien. Abe Sapien. Come on, if you know Hellboy, you have to Hellboy's know
1: Hellboy's friend.
0: Yeah. Well. Okay. Technically, you're correct there. Okay, and then the final name on my list, Cthulhu.
1: One of the monsters on your shirt.
0: That's right. I do have a a Cthulhu shirt. Yeah, correct. Okay, I'm stopping the timer now. Well done, Erin. Not too bad. You did pretty good there. You did well. All right, so my turn. Are you ready with your list? Mm. Okay, wait. The timer's going to start right about now. Go. Tell me. Tomi. Um Ah, uh, Junji Ito, horror manga, a girl who keeps coming back from the dead.
1: Light Yakami.
0: Um, the, oh, I know, the kid who found, the, the student who found the Death Note. Yeah, in, in the manga Death Note.
1: Suki
0: Stackhouse. Suki Stackhouse. You mean the, the girl from True Blood? Mm-hmm. Anna Parkwins character, that one? Yeah. Oh, okay, okay.
1: The Night King.
0: The Night King? From Game of Thrones? Okay, well, yeah, that could be horror. You know, he reanimates the dead. So Okay, so main bad guy in Game of Thrones reanimates the dead. Samara. Um, the girl from The Ring, um, from the movie The Ring. Japanese movie. She crawls out of the TV, kills you.
1: Jigsaw.
0: Uh, Jigsaw. The Jigsaw Punisher villain? No no, 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 Okay, this is horror. So okay. Um, well, technically that's horror. Uh, you mean Jigsaw from the movie from the movie franchise Soul? The little guy with a doll mask mm. tortures people. Yeah. Okay. Um, next one.
1: Dororo.
0: Uh, Dororo, Dororo, Dororo. I know Totoro. Is it?
1: Is Dororo.
0: It... Oh, okay, Dororo with a D. Uh, I'm sorry, don't know who that is. Uh, can I pass? I'll pass. Kitaro. Kitaro. Sounds similar to Dororo. Okay, it's so different. this is obviously some Japanese manga. Okay, I, I'm going to pass that one. I, I, don't, I don't know. Pass.
1: Jack Skellington.
0: Jack Skellington. Um, <laughs> Jack Skellington from A Nightmare Before Christmas, <laughs> The Pumpkin King.
1: Kirigoshima.
0: Kirigoshima. Kirigoshima. Oh, yeah. No, Okay. Oh, wait, wait. It sounds familiar. I'm going to say the girl from Uzumaki, the horror manga Uzumaki, girl, horrible things happened to her family in that town with the spirals. Correct? Yeah. Okay, great. Okay, let me stop the timer. Oh, all right. seems like I didn't do that well. Um, Okay, it took you one minute and 45 seconds to get through my list. But for me, it took two minutes and 25 seconds. So I guess you're the winner this time, Erin. But, you know, I need to brush up on my horror manga. So I've got an excuse there. I I think I gave you a pretty easy list. Wouldn't you say?
1: No. (laughs) (laughs)
0: come on only spawn that's the only one you didn't know so everyone that's our game for this week thank you erin for joining the show i really appreciate it okay so did you enjoy it maybe all right well i hope you come back for uh, subsequent shows will you maybe not (laughs) all right everybody that's erin don't worry i'll work on her she'll she'll come around Okay, we're going to take a little break, and then we'll be back with some more horror talk.
1: About horror,
0: I'd say that we're probably attempting some kind of inoculation.
1: I mean, you have to wonder when we've got all of the stuff that's happening in Syria, and all of the stuff that's happening in the Ukraine, and all of the
0: stuff that's happening in Missouri, when we've got so much real genuine horror wall-to-wall... Why do we need to make up stories about horror? I think we're attempting to inoculate ourselves with a little bit of fear about something that we know can't possibly happen to us, because that's much less horrifying than actually watching the news, where we suspect that, yeah, it probably is going to happen to us and probably quite soon. I've decided to include two new segments to the show this week, and probably... You know, based on popularity, we'll keep it going for as long as we can. Uh, the first segment is entitled "History of Horror Comics." That's right. We'll be looking at how the um, horror comic first came to be, the genesis of four-color fear, if you will, and it starts way back in the nineteen forties, um, and that's when the first few, uh, the first horror comics, first appeared, but. If we go back a little bit earlier, maybe a decade or so earlier in the 1930s, the pulp magazines such as Weird Tales published quite a bit of horror and the Universal Monsters were making a splash at the cinemas. So this, of course, had an influence on all the writers and young comic book creators of the time. So even the early superhero comic books, which appeared in the late 1930s, You had some horror tales, you had some heroes facing off against vampires, against zombies, against supernatural threats. So horror wasn't all that unusual in comics from the very beginning, but the first dedicated horror title only appeared when American Comics Group, ACG, published their Adventures into the Unknown, and that premiered in about 1948. But before that, there were a few horror comic books, just not comic series. There was an adaption of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein um, by the artist Dick Briefer. And um, that was possibly the first horror comic book published in the States. Uh, you had some European horror comic books, but mostly single publications. And they weren't really albums. There were more um, so, you know, in newspapers, newspaper syndicated strips, and so forth. So, um, but with the advent of Adventures into the Unknown in 1948, that is when the horror comic boom finally started. As to why publishers started publishing horror comic books, they noticed that their tales of superheroes fighting these frightening menaces usually sold well, and lots of people were still going to the movies, enjoying the monster films. So because of that, publishers sought to uh, make a quick buck based off the popularity of other mediums, employing the same genre of horror. And it worked, because after Adventures into the Unknown, you got, of course, EC Comics. But like I mentioned Adventures in the Unknown came first. So uh, basically the early stories published by this particular comic book was um, very formulaic. It featured lots of uh, werewolves, lots of zombies, lots of women being threatened by some you know, um, unknown menace and um, their men had to save them. Very cliche. But uh, the art was steadily starting to improve. Um, The artists became better and better, better and better at drawing these frightening scenes, scaring readers more and more. And with horror comic books, it is all about the art. Of course, the story matters a lot, but uh, the art is what grabs you, what frightens you, the images and panels you remember decades later. Um, And that's what makes horror comics so visceral, is these images that pop into your mind from these frightful, uh, frightening illustrations. All right, so we've got the American Comics Group doing quite well. They also had a few sister publications at the time because um, they wanted to cash in on whatever they were doing and they were doing something right. So they had a lot of um, readers and eventually um, the readers sort of became tired of the same self, same formula. So they introduced some weird science, introduced a few uh, crime thrillers, psychological horror, and that went over well, but uh, the weird science, not so much really. They, they may do with that more in the 50s. But after Adventures into the Unknown came EC Comics in the early 1950s. They started becoming very popular. They already existed in the late 40s, but it was only um, with a story by uh, Johnny Craig, Published in Moon Girl number five, that uh, EC finally became known as a quality publisher of horror. And after that, horror just took off. The fifties were definitely dominated by an era of horror comics. Uh, the western genre was still popular. The romance comics were still doing well, but the horror genre far eclipsed the, whatever other comics could offer. A lot of these tales were creative, but most of them were syndications and adaptations of, let's say, famous stories like Edgar Allan Poe's The Black Cat, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde from Robert Louis Stevenson. You had um, many, many versions of Frankenstein showing up in these comics. A retelling of the story with uh, minor twists and turns, uh, tweaks to his origin. So, uh, not a lot of creativity other than, you know, a few guys who really tried to do something different and to push the horror form into something much bigger and better than it was at the time. And eventually, EC did that when they started employing the greatest writers and artists in the field, possibly assembled by any publisher ever. Um, You had the aforementioned Johnny Craig, you had Al Feldstein, You had Jack Davis, Jack Kamen, whom I've mentioned in previous shows. You have Joe Orlando. um, And they would go on to, you know, become uh, recognized for their talent and scope and imaginary vision far more so than any of their contemporaries at the time. So that's our horror segment for this week. Next week... We'll be looking at EC Comics and their success during the 50s, as well as the dreaded advent of the Comic Book Code Authority and Frederick Wortham's Witch Hunt of Horror Comics. Take this. I don't like horror comics. You'll like this one, Mr. Phoenix. Well, it could save your life. All right, we're back and this is a little segment I'd like to call our horror bio segment. And what we're doing here is we're going to be discussing one character out of horror comics every week. I'm going to run down his origin, going to speak about um, what makes them tick, so to speak. And um, this week we're looking at one of the most frightening horror villains in comic books. I'm talking about the infamous Dr. Anton Arcane. Known primarily as an enemy of the Swamp Thing, Dr. Arcane has had quite a long and sordid history. And uh, let's get into it, shall we? Okay, so it starts off with a young boy, obviously called Anton, and um, he lived before the Second World War. He was a kid possibly late 1890s, and then he showed some signs of aberrant behavior early on. Uh, his siblings noticed it first before his parents did. He even, uh, since he was the older sibling, even abused, sexually abused his younger sister, which is very upsetting. So um, his two siblings, one a girl called Anyala and his young brother called Gregory, they feared him. So he excelled at school. Um, He soon enrolled in uh, a university where he studied biological science. I think it was called the Hamburg School of Medicine. But he was expelled because much like Dr. Victor Frankenstein, he had been involved in some unethical experiments. Um, He became a drug addict. There was even some uh, corpses that he defiled. So he's a, a necrophiliac. Basically, a deplorable human being. A prime candidate for an evil horror, vi- horror villain. So then he um, enlisted in the German military in World War I. And he became a field doctor for the sole purpose of studying and dissecting wounded soldiers and the corpses he came across on the battlefields of Europe, in the trenches and so forth. So, finally, he encountered the Swamp Thing in his very, uh, well, an older iteration, which is actually um, Swamp Thing from the future, Uh, Hans von Zimmer. um, He had become the Swamp Thing. Uh, He was a pilot. Uh, He was um, time lost at the time, Uh, but he did recognize Anton Arcane as the foe that he would face in the future. And then that was the first time, though, that Arcane had encountered the Swamp Thing, and it um, influenced his entire life forward because he wanted the Swamp Thing's body uh, to study it and to figure out how he could attain immortality. And that's basically his sole pursuit, is the the pursuit of immortality. So eventually he um, uh, joined up. He, he was defeated by the Swamp Thing at that time. Uh, after he tortured the Swamp Thing... Um, he also attacked his mother because his mother turned out to be uh, quite good. She tried to thwart his evil and then he turned on her and tried to sacrifice her. But he was shot down, down by Hans von Zimmer, uh, the time lost swamp thing. And uh, Arcane was um, almost dead, believed to be dead at least, but he survived his horrific wounds only to then uh, serve alongside Adolf Hitler. In later years, yeah, he was a confidant of Hitler, and he encouraged Hitler to start the Second World War again for the sole purposes of um, the corpses that he needed to perfect his science and his experimentations. And he created the first Unmen, which is what he's primarily famous for. He, in comic books, he has created these servants called Unmen much like uh, Frankenstein-type monsters, except smaller and more grotesque, more malformed. They come in all shapes and sizes. And he was planning to help Hitler conquer the world with the unmen but again, he was defeated. Um, or not defeated, he was thwarted in his goal. And at the end of the war in Europe, um, he had gained a type of immortality through studying all the bodies that Hitler supplied him with. So he was now functionally immortal, except for the fact that his body still decayed like a human being, but he couldn't actually be killed per se. So um, much later, he uh, encountered Gregory, his younger brother again, and Gregory's wife, Anise. And Anton, in fact, fell in love with Anise, so he blamed Gregory for his unhappiness because Anise obviously wouldn't love such a horrid evil monster like Anton Arcane. So he um, convinced the villagers of the nearby um, town to burn Anise at the stake for as a witch, just to punish Gregory for stealing away the woman that he coveted. Um, then, um, uh, of course, Gregory and Anise had a daughter called Abigail before uh, Anton again met up with them. So he was now the the ward of young Abigail. And um, Gregory uh, was uh, terribly wounded while walking around their family estate. He stepped on a, a landmine, an old landmine from World War II, and he blew himself to bits. But Anton Arcane, his older brother, saw this as the perfect opportunity to practice some of his skills. So he sewed him together like a, much like a patchwork monster and in fact called him the Patchwork Man he would become an enemy of the Swamp Thing in later years as well. So um, Anton Arcane imprisoned the Batchwick Man for many, many uh, years afterwards. And then he started to uh, look for a different form of immortality again, because as I mentioned, his body was decaying, and um, he wanted a form that was more durable and could last through the ages. And again, he focused on the Swamp Thing. So once you witnessed Dr. Alec Holland's transformation into the Swamp Thing, he sent his unmen to abduct the Swamp Thing so that he could study him and figure out how to uh, duplicate the process or transplant his mind or transfer his mind to the Swamp Thing's body. And he, in fact, almost succeeded in that. Um, But the Swamp Thing managed to escape and he threw arcane through a window. So death via defenestration. But still, Arcane, being semi-immortal, he managed to cling to life, a twisted kind of life, and some of his unman spirited him away and managed to transfer his mind into an inferior uh, body of an unman. And then again, something defeated him once uh, Arcane returned in force, and he was banished to hell since his body had been finally destroyed. But even in hell, he managed to escape, and in the form of a very small fly he uh, possessed the body of Abigail's husband, Matthew Cable. And that was chronicled in Alan Moore's Saga of the Swamp Thing Run, where Arkane combined his mystic powers and science with the natural inborn psychic powers of Matthew Cable to become a type of God, a God of despair, horror, evil, darkness, call it what you will. After that, after his defeat again at the hands of the Swamp Thing, he was sent to hell once more and eventually was turned into a demon by the Lords of Hell because they recognized his capacity for evil and for slaughter. So that's a quick rundown on the history of Dr. Anton Arcane, one of the most feared and fearsome horror villains in comics. There's also a brief story where he, he met up with uh, Alec and Abigail Holland's daughter, Tiffy, in uh, Hell. And um, eventually after that, he became somehow, uh, he became good. He became a, a force for good. His uh, evil was expunged and he became an ally of the Swamp Thing. But of course, with the advent of DC's The New 52 comics, it was established that Arcane was back to his evil uh, conniving ways which is just the way I like him. There's no way this character can ever be redeemed. He should be left evil. You can't change a core principle of a character like that and then just expect me to still like it. So that's our horror bio for this week, focusing on Dr. Anton Arcane. Well, that's it. Um, We finished the last of our segments, and it's time for me to say goodbye. But please, if you want to reach me, send me an email to darklongbox at gmail.com You can also follow me on Twitter at darklongbox And please check out the blog that I'm running called The Long Box of Darkness You can find that at longboxofdarkness.com I appreciate any feedbacks or comments But before I sign off I just want to give a quick shout out to some friends of the show uh, Recently a young lady by the name of Rebecca Booth. She's one of the members of the United Nations of Horror podcast panel. They discuss horror films. Um, You can find them on iTunes and also um, on Facebook. They've got a Facebook group. She uh, promoted the show, promoted my show, The Long Box of Darkness, on the Facebook group. And then um, her friend Chris Downs also posted a link on... his site, horror, etc. Both of them are great uh, reviewers. I really enjoy reading what they write about horror movies. Uh, Rebecca especially does a great job in the horror magazine Diabolique, which I've been subscribing to for about a year or so. And I I think she's um, an editor over there as well. So thanks to Rebecca for helping me out and um, putting the show out there. And then also on Twitter... Uh, Many thanks to my friend Avatar of the Green, um, a man called Grant, he's uh, retweeted a couple of my podcasts, and then also to the Coffee and Comics blog and podcast, also run by one of my good friends, so please give the Coffee and Comics blog a listen as well, and don't forget about the United Nations of Horror, podcast about horror films. Well, that's it for this week. Please tune in again next week as we take yet another peek into the long box of darkness.